Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right. uh, Hey, I'm Corbin. Uh, I'm going to be sharing the second week uh, of our Kingdom of Heaven series. And uh, last week we saw a video led by Marty, uh, and he shared with us some of the things that go into what the Kingdom of Heaven looks like. In fact, he gave us three conditions uh, that the that the kingdom of heaven always has. So these are these are necessary for the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing is the finger of God moves. And he explained that it was like the pinky finger because you know like that's all we can handle. Uh, so the finger of God moves. And the cool thing with that, if you missed it, is that the finger of God is always moving. God is always at work. He is always doing things. So that condition is always happening. God is doing his part for the kingdom of God. The other two sometimes don't always happen. Uh, and those are necessary for being part of the kingdom as well. Uh, the first one is that the people of the kingdom of heaven call him Lord. If you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to acknowledge God is king. Uh, because that's, that's who's king in the kingdom. Uh, but then also, it's like a public declaration. You have to share it with others. So it's not just something that you think inwardly. It's something you say outwardly. You acknowledge God is God, he is Lord, and he is king of the kingdom. The third thing is that you also respond in obedience. This isn't just something you say, but it's also something that you live. And uh, one of the things Marty was sharing with us is this Hebrew word, tzedakah, and that means uh, right relationships. It's righteousness, but it's in your relationships. It's not something that is just, oh, I follow a bunch of rules, because that's what the Pharisees did, but they weren't having right relationships with the people. They weren't living as God intended them to live with the character God intended them to have. And so while they were doing the things right, they were living in obedience to the literal law, they weren't living in obedience to Zedekah, right? Relationships and having that righteousness. Uh, so that's what we're supposed to do. If we want to live in the kingdom of God, God's, we have to recognize where God's finger's moving, uh, that it's always moving. We have to call him Lord. He's king. And we have to respond in obedience and have right relationships, living as God intended us to live. Uh, so we're going to continue on today. And uh, it just so happened, um, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable sometimes when I have to come up with what to say. I, I don't really like standing on a stage and saying a bunch of things that I want to say. I have a lot of thoughts on the kingdom of heaven, um, but I just, I, it, I don't want to say things from my own mouth. I want to say what God wants me to say. So I was asking God, and, and one of the cool little things that the finger of God was moving in my life was he just led me straight to this passage, kind of randomly. I was going to do a one-on-one with one of my students, and I accidentally said the wrong book. And so we were studying this book that I didn't intend to study, and then, as it turns out, at the point where we're talking about it, uh, where we were at in the book, talks about the kingdom of heaven. And I was like, oh, okay. And everything that I read in that passage, everything that I was learning about this book, I was like, that's what God wants me to say. That's what this is all about. So God moved in my life and led me to the right, this passage that we're going to read today, which is in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to go through uh, 9 through 23. But before we do, let's pray and give this time over to the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity uh, to share your word. Um, Thank you for moving in my life and showing me and revealing all this stuff to me so that I can share it. And I pray, Lord, now that you give me the strength and the boldness and the humility to share it well. Um, 
you are king in my life, and I, I want to serve you, and this is what you've called me to share, and so here I am. Uh, and I, I know that everyone's here because you've called them to listen. So I pray, Lord, that as we, as we dive into your word and we hear what you have to say, that we can take it in uh, and apply it in our lives and that we can all dwell in your kingdom. Um, we give this time over to you. It's yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Colossians uh, chapter 1, and we're going we're gonna to break it up into sections um, because you'll see it, it. There's a lot to unpack here, so... Uh, we're going to read 9 through 12 first. It says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, um, one of the things uh, that we got going on right now, uh, you you already missed it today, sorry, Uh, but we have this class going on uh, that Cornelius, one of our up-and-coming elders, is teaching in the back uh, next Sunday. They'll be there again at 9 uh, and they're, they're just going through Genesis, but he's also shedding light on how our mindset is different than the authors of the Bible. Uh, that we live in a Western context, uh, which is, it's just different. And so the way we think, the way we read, uh, the way we write, the way we talk, it's all, it's different than the way they did. Uh, and so when we read the Bible, some of us, may, we may get confused from time to time as we look at some of these phrases. I, I mean, what, this was like all one sentence, right? Like, that's, that's a really long sentence. And Paul, in particular, is notorious for this, where he elaborates a thought over and over again. And that's because he thinks differently. He's writing in a different language, and he does it in a different context, and he says things in a different way. And uh, one of the things that Cornelius was sharing last week that I really like, uh, and it's important for us to understand as we dive into this passage, is that we here in America, we like outlines and bullet points. You want me to stand on a stage and tell you all the, the, the five things you need to do to get into heaven, right? Good. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Make it simple, right? Like, give me one, two, three, four, five, step, 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 done, checklist, I'm good. But that's not how the biblical authors wrote things because they didn't think like bullet points. If you think of it like an imagery, like we use sheets of paper and each paper is its own distinct thing and you could take one piece out and get something out of it. That's how we do things. You could take just a piece and get something, whatever you want out of that, and it doesn't have to fit in the rest. But there, it's more like a scroll. It's an unfurling. They're sharing a truth that's elaborating and building off of each other and it's, it's rolling out this statement, this thought, this idea. And so you can't just take a piece out and have it on its own. You need to see it in its entire context to understand what the author is trying to get across. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's sharing this. Uh, He starts, I mean, the very, in verse nine, it says, for this reason. That's like saying, for example, but you can't just start there. You need to know, like, wait, what, what is he talking about? What is this example sharing with us? So for this reason, Paul is saying that he and a man named Timothy are praying for the people in Colossae because, 
what we find out earlier in the letter is that he's heard that the gospel spread there. A man named Epaphras that he discipled has started a church in Colossae. Paul's never been there. He's never gone there. He didn't preach the word of God there. He didn't start this church. Epaphras did. And then Epaphras came to share with Paul, hey, this is this church. And Paul was excited and saying, I'm going to write to them. And in his, in his letter, he says, I've heard that the gospel is spread there. And for this reason, we have been praying for you. Me and Timothy have been praying, Timothy and I have been praying for you. Uh, and so he then shares what his prayer is with the Colossians. And I'm so grateful that Paul did this because it lets us see how Paul prays. I think that's one of those things that as we read through this, we just see Bible verses and sometimes we gloss over and we forget like what's actually happening here. We get a glimpse into one of the most epic Christian to ever live. We get a glimpse into his prayer life. What did he pray for? How did he pray? What was it looking like? And so Paul fortunately shares that with the Colossians, what he's exactly praying for them and how does it work itself out. Now, in your notes, I I Americanized his prayer, if you will. I, I put it in an outline form so that it makes a little bit more sense. But understand, again, that his prayer, it's an unfurling thing. So each point leads to another point leads to another point. It's not all together. So when we pray, sometimes we go, God, I want this, 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 and this. And they all have equal weight, and they're all stuff. But Paul's prayer is, I, God, I'm praying for this, so that this can happen, so that this can happen, so that this can happen. So understand that as we're going through it. And to show you that, I, I made the outline make it make more sense for us. So the first thing he prays for, probably the most important thing, is that they would understand the will of God. He's praying that they would understand God's will with wisdom and understanding. Uh, and uh, I don't have time to unpack like the will of God. There's a whole thing. I would love to preach that sermon also. Um, but on the back of your notes, I dive into it a little bit uh, with the home groups. If you want to do that on your own or with your home group, that's awesome. Uh, if you want to like wrestle with what God's will is. But for today, we're just going to understand this, that if you want to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, that's the second thing he prays for them, is if you want to walk in a manner pleasing to God, it's very important that you understand what God's will is. If you don't know the person or what he wants or what they're up to, like, how are you supposed to please them? You could try to give me a gift or do something that would please me, but if you don't know me very well, you might give me something I don't even want. You might give me like work to do, and I'm just like, oh, it's like you give me a plant, and I'm like, oh, now I have to keep this thing alive, you know? Like, ugh. you know, actually, I would like a plant. But anyway, you get to know somebody, you understand what their goal is and how they're trying to live their life, what they're up to, what they're doing with their life. You can better help them and please them in their life, right? The more you get to know them, the better you can come alongside them. Same thing with God. The more we get to know him, what he's up to, what he's doing, the better we can walk in a manner pleasing the Lord. So that's why Paul says, first, God, help them understand your will. Help them understand what you're up to, what you're doing, what the finger of God is at work doing in, in their context, in their church, in their world, and throughout all time. And then help them walk in a manner pleasing to you. Help them, help them live their life in accordance with your will. That's the, like the zedakah, like do live as God intended them to live. And so they have good relationships and have right relationships with the world around them, help them do that. And then following that, so that they can bear fruit in good works. 
So they understand the will of God. Help them, Colossae. Help them understand the will of God. So that they can walk in a manner pleasing to God. Pleasing to you, God. So that they can bear fruit in good works. Now here's the important thing. Because a lot of us think that the, the main goal is good works. And if we were looking at this like a bullet point list, we'd like, oh yeah, good works. That's an important thing. But it's the farthest thing down the list. And the reason why is because it's most important to understand God's will so that you can walk in a manner pleasing to him, have right relationships, live as God intended you to live so that you can bear fruit because the the goal is to bear fruit in your good works. What happens is we walk away from a sermon in church and stuff and we always think, I'm going to go do some good stuff. But good stuff isn't the goal. Good stuff is part of the life that we live. The goal is to understand God's will, to have right relationships, and to bear fruit. We do that by doing good stuff. Now, if you understand God's will, and if you're walking in a manner pleasing to him, if you're having right relationships, you will bear fruit in good works. But you start there. So you see how his prayer works out. And if we looked at it like a list, we'd miss this point. But Paul is unpacking this prayer and sharing with the Colossians what he wants for their lives. And he's not saying, go do good stuff. He's saying, walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord because you understand his will. And bear good fruit. Have good relationships. Because you could do good stuff and be mean about it. You probably have. Like, I don't know. I've definitely done that in my life. You know, like when you're a kid and you're told say sorry and you don't really mean it or you know you try to give somebody a compliment but you don't really like them and you accidentally insult them you know like not that that would ever happen Um, but we do this kind of stuff and we think that oh that the good work is what God's after but what God wants is us to understand his will and and have right relationships and bear fruit and then what I love is that he finished this is off with, as you're doing that, as, the, as God, that you help them understand your will, as they walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, and as they bear fruit, help them increase in their knowledge of you. Which just brings it all the way back to the beginning, full circle, that you, they, the more you do and the more that you live out this life, the more you'll get to understand God and get to know him. And the better you'll understand his will and walk in a manner pleasing to him. And then it's just an ongoing cycle. And so Paul prays this prayer for the Colossians and shares it with them. And then uh, he finishes off this prayer explaining that this isn't, this isn't the, the, uh, one of the unfolding pieces. This is its own thing at the end, explaining how all of this is possible. That in verse 11, that they've been strengthened with all power according to his, Jesus's glorious might, for attaining all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's finishing that prayer saying all of this is possible. You're able to understand the will of God. You're able to please him. You're able to bear fruit all because what Jesus did for you, for all of us. He's given us strength. He's given us the ability to do these things. And notice he uses, I love that he uses this word, the qualification, that he's qualified us. And you might have heard this phrase before that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Uh, and that's, that's because it's all about Jesus. And we're going to see that more as we go on. But you see, this is, this is his prayer. There's no pre-qualifications uh, to following God and, and living a righteous life with him. Let's move on. Verse 13. Verse 13 and 14. For he delivered us from the domain or dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Jesus, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is where I was led to this passage. I was like, oh, here's the kingdom of God. This was really cool. Uh, And then I started to study and learn more, and it's really cool how this all unpacks uh, for us. Again, this isn't written in our context. This isn't written to us in modern-day America. This is written to the church in Colossae from Paul. And it's around 62 AD is when this was written. Does anyone know who was in power, what the main political authority was at this time? Caesar, yeah, Rome. Rome. Rome was the most powerful nation probably mankind has ever or will ever have. They reigned for 1,500 years and they occupied most of the known world. They were extremely powerful. They built roads and, and bridges that are still in use today. Today. This was 2,000 years ago and they're still like they're the power of Rome. We, we took a lot of how we, our infrastructure and law is based on Rome. So Rome was this incredible kingdom, this incredible thing that was going on in the world. And so when Paul's writing this to Colossae, Rome is, a, is the power at the time. Just like if I were writing a letter to you or to some group or some place right now, I would be doing with the mindset of an American that lived under Joe Biden. You know, like that's, that's what I am, that's my context right now. And we just walked through an incredibly difficult season that is definitely going to play into whatever I'm writing and whatever I'm saying, because I just walked through just a crazy season of life with the pandemic and everything else going on. So what's going on in my life and the world around me directly impacts what I say and how I say it. And the same thing goes for Paul as he's writing this letter to the Colossians. And one of the cool things that I learned as I was studying this uh, is this one word transferred. I had it underlined right here. Uh, in Greek, it's methistomy. That's what it looks like in Greek. Uh, methistomy. Uh, and so when Paul is sharing this, he's writing in Greek and he's saying that uh, Jesus has delivered us, the Colossians and Paul, from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son himself, to the kingdom of heaven. First of all, I just want to point out, uh, in this way, it says rescued and stuff, but notice that it's past tense. This has already happened. This thing, this, this rescuing, this uh, transferring, it's already done. Um, so it's, it's a past tense, but it's also, this word methistomy would have been commonly used in this time because uh, it's, a, it's a word to explain when someone has been removed from one kingdom to another because their kingdom was conquered. So, for instance, in this context, they would understand, like, hey, Rome has expanded over and over again. They've conquered other nations and other groups of people, and those people become part of the Roman Empire. And the word that they would use for them going from one kingdom to another is methistomy. They've been transferred from the kingdom of whatever they were a part of to now they're part of Rome. They may not have even had to move. They're just now part of a new colony. They're a, new part, a part of a new place. And so they have a new God. They have to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, methistomy. So the Colossians, when Paul write, wrote this word, they would understand that not only is he saying that now the people that have been rescued from the domain of darkness, the people that have been delivered from the domain of darkness are now transplanted into the kingdom of heaven. But that also would mean that Jesus, the new king of the new kingdom, conquered 
the domain of darkness. Because that's what this word means. It means that Jesus didn't just transfer somebody from one place to another. It's that he conquered that kingdom and we are the spoils of war. We are what he fought for, what he attained, and what he won. And so that's what this word uh, leads to. It helps us understand. You see, just understanding a little bit of the Greek helps you know. Plus, it gives me an excuse to sound smart and uh, use the, my expensive degree for something. So uh, anyway, so yeah, this is, uh, this is Jesus's kingdom. And then Paul explains in verse 14 a little bit about Jesus's kingdom. First of all, uh, there's redemption, redemption uh, for the people. And what that means is to buy back. Uh, so Jesus didn't just purchase us, deliver us. He bought us back. He, he was the rightful owners of us because he created us. And he had to rebuy us. And so that's what, that's what redemption means, is that there's this repurchasing. Uh, and also the forgiveness of sins. And now that's a good news. That's good news that the, the kingdom of heaven is forgiveness, because otherwise we'd, we wouldn't belong there, right? We don't, we don't get to go into the kingdom unless we've been forgiven. But we can't stop there, because the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, includes forgiveness. And that means that we have to participate in that. Which means that we have to forgive each other. We can't participate in Jesus' kingdom, which includes forgiveness, if we're not willing to forgive each other. This is why Jesus later says that uh, plenty of times in his, in his gospels, he shares that if you aren't willing to forgive others, then I won't forgive you. It's because it's a core principle of his kingdom. If you're going to dwell there, you're going to understand that you've been forgiving, and therefore you have to also forgive. This kingdom is about forgiveness. And if you want to belong here, you have to do that as well. So, uh, there's that. Uh, and then there's the third thing about Jesus' kingdom. It's pretty self-explanatory. Jesus is king. It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory there. Jesus is king. Uh, I, I did ask this question. I was going to ask you guys too. Who in here would say Jesus is king in your life? Like right here, right now, I acknowledge Jesus is king. All right, I'll pray for you guys. Okay. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's good. No, this is one of those things that... Uh, as we go on from this past, this next part, uh, you're going to read about what king, who King Jesus is and how awesome he is. So for those of us who acknowledge Jesus is king, uh, this is your king, and he's epic. For those of you who don't acknowledge him as king, this is who he is. You want him as your king, I promise you. So let's read uh, verse 15 through 20. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of, to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this is King Jesus. First of all, he is the image of the invisible God. Anyone else know, hear this phrase and it sparks something in your head of the image of God? Does anyone know, else know where in the Bible it talks about that? Genesis 1. Well, yeah, Genesis chapter 1. Unpacking uh, creation and who is the image of God in that story? 
well, God is the image of God, sure. But the people, people are the image of God. God creates people. He says, let us make man in our image. And then he says, this is very good. Uh, but he says, let us make man in our image. And so people are the image of God. That's why when uh, he rolls the Israelites out of Egypt and, and gives them a new law, he says, don't make any graven images. He says, don't make any images of me. You are the image of me. You are supposed to show who I am to the world. Now, there's a problem with that. We're not so good. <laughs> the Israelites didn't do a very good job, and I don't know about any of you, but I know for myself, I don't do a great job of showing God to the rest of the world. But there is one who does a, a fantastic job, perfect job, actually, of showing who God is, and that's Jesus. He is the image of God, and he shows who he is for the rest of us to see. So if you want to get to know a little bit better of who God is and what he's up to, read through the Gospels. See who Jesus is. Then it says, uh, verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Now in the last one, you say he's the firstborn. You might get the idea that Jesus was a created being himself. But remember, Genesis 1, 26, for let us make, and God said, let us make man in our image. Jesus is there. That's a plurality. That's God saying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all talking, let's make man in our image. Jesus is there. And Paul reiterates that here in verse 16, that he created everything. Heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So he created all stuff, and he, he created everything. All of it is him, and it, it's all for him. He's working it all out for his good purpose. He's got a plan involving everything that he created. Now, this is where I got off uh, in my own life over the last couple of years is I noticed I've been living in attention. I started to recognize, like, okay, I'm not fully dwelling in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not fully living my Christian life out. I'm not fully trusting in God and leaning on God in this season. And I started, as we were doing this study, I started to recognize this, this problem in my life. I started dealing with anxiety that I'd never had before. And I'm like, what is happening? And it's because I started to see over and over again, all around me, the control that other people had. The control that the government had over my life, which was not just from the pandemic and all the rules and regulations and traveling restrictions and all that other stuff. Not just that, but I also got married this last year and my wife is from Brazil. And so we had to do all this immigration process, which we did everything the way we're supposed to do, but there's still this fear that someone could just be like, nope, you got to go back home. You got to go back to your home country. And guys, I waited a really long time for this girl. Like I was, I, I mean, some of you guys have been around for a while. You know how desperate I was <laughs> and how scary it was like to, to just think that someone could just be like, mm, had a bad day. I don't really like you that much. No. And I'm like, oh, that is the anxiety that that comes with. And, and then you add in all the travel restrictions and not knowing what's going to happen. It, it was hard because so many other people had control over my life that I didn't. And it wasn't that I stopped believing that God was in control. It was just that I stopped thinking about it. And I stopped remembering it. And I stopped dwelling on it because I was so focused on everyone else's control over me and not the fact that he had control over all of it. He had control over all of it. I mean, the fact that I met her in the first place was just very... I mean, I moved from Southern California to Pullman to meet a girl in Brazil. Like, <laughs> how does that work? 
God works things out. He is in control. And I have to, and I'm still working on this. Like I have to come back to that realization that, yeah, while all this other stuff might have control over my physical life right here, right now, God is in control of all of that. Jesus has control. The one who I trust in, who I believe in, who I have hope in is in control. And I can rest in that. I can hope in that. I can believe in that. And so that's one of the things that I had to recognize. And one of the things I want to point out is that when, when, we, when Paul is saying that Jesus has control over everything because he created everything and all of it was created by him and for him, what that means is that we don't have to worry because the God who loves us so much, the, the Jesus who died for us, is in control of everything. Even the stuff we don't like, even the stuff we don't understand, Jesus is in control of all of it. And he's working it out. Hang in there. It's, it's tough. I know. Uh, and then he moves on that he's holding all things together, that he's also the head of the body, the church. This is a cool thing. One thing that I think we need to all remember, Jesus is the head of what goes on here. Jesus is the purpose of all of this and, and the point and the power and the authority. Everything that happens here is because of Jesus. All the good that is done is, is Jesus. And, and we have to submit to his authority, his leading and his, his direction. Jesus is at the head of the church. Uh, and he gives us some responsibilities in that, which is a terrifying thing. For instance, he's given me the responsibility to share this message. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. This is a really cool message, but I'm scared. I'm still scared to this day sometimes to share these things. because I'm like, I don't want to mess this up. Um, but God is good. And he gives me the responsibility to share uh, what God has given or what God has done for us and what Jesus has done for us. So that's cool. Uh, and then we move on to verse 19. It was God's good pleasure to have the fullness dwell in him, that God, God worked it all out, and it was his good pleasure. I love that. That's how, how Paul writes that, that it was, it was God's good plan, and he was, he's excited about it, that everything dwells in Jesus. And then verse 20, this is where it gets really epic, that through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is just, first of all, I want to point out something really cool. Jesus is our defender, right? He is, he is, he is establishing our righteousness and he is defending us in the court. Do you, all, do you guys know who the judge is in the courtroom? If Jesus is the defense attorney, do you know who the judge is? God, but actually more accurately, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the defense attorney and the judge. Do you understand how broken that is? <laughs> like, that's not fair. You know who the accuser is, by the way? Satan. 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 The little term Satan is the accuser. So if, if we're imagining heaven as a courtroom or like the journey to heaven and judgment and all that stuff as a courtroom, Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the defense attorney. Satan's the accuser trying to accuse us. And Jesus is like, nah. Uh, this, this guy's, he's coming in with me. He, he's blameless. And then the judge, Jesus, looks down at Jesus and be like, well, you're really handsome, so welcome in. You know, like, I, I agree with this guy. He's got a lot of good, poor Satan has no chance, you know, to fight back. Uh, but yeah, so in this system, Jesus is both the defender and the judge. And that's why it says, uh, Paul says that he's reconciling all things to himself, Jesus' sacrifice reconciled all things to himself because he's the judge. And then having made peace, listen to this line, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It's his cross. 
It says his cross. This is a possessive term. Paul says it's his cross. Remember, this is the context of the Roman Empire. People all over the place are getting hung up on crosses, and that's not, that's not anyone's cross but Rome. That's Rome's cross in their context. Paul's writing that this is the cross. They all know what the cross is. They see people on it, maybe family and friends. They see people strung up on a cross, and they're like, ah, that's scary. Don't, don't, don't cross Rome, you know? Like, don't, don't do that. Maybe that's where that, no. Anyway, but that, that's what happens. Like, if you do, if you disobey, this is a sign of fear, and they establish peace. The Roman cross established peace, but peace through fear. They got people to be peaceful and do what they want them to do by scaring them, putting them on the cross. So it showed their power of authority. It established peace through fear. But here's the thing. Are you still scared of it? No. You're not scared. When you look at that image, you're not thinking, oh, I'm scared. I am terrified of Rome. They might crucify me. No, you're not thinking that. Because it's not Rome's cross. Not anymore. It's Jesus' cross. And Jesus' cross, guess what it did? It showed his power and authority. It established true peace, eternal peace through love. And it's still a symbol of hope that we look on. It's still a symbol of community. That now you're not looking at this cross and thinking, oh man, I'm scared that Rome might kill me. Now you're looking at that cross thinking, thank you, Jesus. I have hope in you. That's what we see when we look at the cross. And, and it establishes a community. I also noticed this. Like, you see a cross in someone's uh, car or they're wearing a necklace. Like, whenever I see, like, I'm watching baseball and I see one of the athletes I really like have a cross around their neck, I'm like, oh, sweet. I can play baseball in heaven with this guy. Like, that's so cool. Because we have the same hope and we have the same king. And one of the cool things that as I was studying this, that I, I one of the pastors that I was listening to give a sermon on it, he was sharing that, one of the, the questions that I always have is, why did Jesus come when he did? And I have a kind of a satisfying answer now. Remember, this is in the height of the Roman Empire. And that's like man's best kingdom. 1,500 years they reign. Like we talk about this. Like there's probably no other kingdom man will ever create that was as powerful and as strong as Rome. And the symbol that they used to establish their peace and their dominance and their authority for their kingdom is this cross. And what did Jesus do but come in the middle of that time and establish his kingdom with the same cross? Show his power and authority with the same cross. And he dominated to the point now that we don't even think about it as the Roman cross. We think about the cross of Jesus. So Jesus has this kingdom and he starts it with, with man's best kingdom and their sign of power and authority using fear. And Jesus turns it into a sign of hope using love, and establishing his kingdom with it. I just think that's so cool that, that not only did Jesus conquer the domain of darkness when he died on that cross, but he also showed that his kingdom is better than all other kingdoms. Not, not even the best kingdom that man could build uh, is close to Jesus' kingdom. Let's read the rest. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And though you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order that you present you, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. 
which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Pi, Paul, <laughs> I wit, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. A couple of things that I just want to point out before we finish out this this passage. I really like uh, verse twenty one again. It establishes, just like his prayer established that good deeds weren't necessarily the goal of the kingdom, uh, that, that the kingdom of heaven, our main prayer should be understanding God's will and living our life according to it, right? Just like that, evil deeds aren't necessarily the, the goal of the domain of darkness. Um, it's a sign of it. The goal of the domain of darkness is so that we're not in the kingdom of heaven, to alienate us from the kingdom of heaven, to remove us from the relationship with God. That is the goal of the domain of darkness, the dominion, the authority, the power of evil and sin, is to remove us from our relationship with God. That is what it's at work doing. Evil deeds, we might look at, and because we're in a physical world and we look at those things and think, that's the goal, that's, that's hurting people, but no, that's not the goal, that's just the evidence of it. And that's when you start to see things from that lens, you start to understand that this person hurt me, but I can still love them and care about them because they're suffering from the same thing that I used to and maybe still do. We've, we've had our relationship with God broken and we've been alienated from the kingdom of heaven and because of that, we engage in evil deeds. It's this, the evidence, the symptoms of living in the domain of darkness. And so... Uh, that's, that's another thing that I just, I don't want us to gloss over and move past that Paul is wanting, the goal of the kingdom is to have everyone rejoin that relationship with God. The, the point of Jesus' death is to reunite us and reconcile us so that we can have relationship with him, so that we can dwell back in the kingdom of heaven. Now out of that, the symptoms of living in the kingdom is good things. We do good work in the kingdom. Just like people who live in the domain of darkness they do bad things. But those are just evidences. Those aren't the goals. The goal is to live in the kingdom, to get back and reunite with our relationship with God. And fortunately, as we discussed, Jesus did that for us. All of this is about him, what he did and how he has the power. He has the authority. He reconciled us because of his death. And he presents us to himself. He presents us to himself. Blameless, beyond reproach giving us his righteousness and taking our sin. Verse 23, if indeed, this, this is a conditional phrase, if, if indeed, this is the catch, if you do this, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the good things that you do, no, from the hope, from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. How do you stay in the kingdom? It's not by working your way harder and becoming a better person and becoming this epic, awesome person. Those are great things, yes. But if you really want to stay in the kingdom, and I'll unpack this, what it looks like, at least in my life later, but if you want to stay in the kingdom, you hang on to the hope that you have in Jesus. That's how you stay in the kingdom. You just hang on to that hope. And that's what Paul is saying. If you continue firm in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I, 
I want to share a few things um, of how this plays out and what we should be doing about it. Um, this is the, the preaching side of it. That was all teaching. This is preaching. Look for the, the finger of God. One of the things that I try to do in my life and one of the things that I've been trying to get the youth group to do and the home groups to do is constantly ask this, answer this question, what is God doing? Well, how have you seen God moving recently? How, if we want to use this phrase, how have you seen the finger of God moving in your life and around you? I keep asking this question over and over again because I want us to get in the habit of looking for it. Because the better we can see what God is up to, the better we can please him by walking according to his will. So we got to be looking because again, finger of God's always moving. Let's take a look and and look for it and then also better understand his will. And there's no better way to get to know who God is than reading his word. The more you read his word, the more you understand what he's been up to, what he's been up to all throughout history and what he's up to now. There's also another cool way to do it is have relationship with each other. Because guess what? The Holy Spirit that's inside me is also inside you. And so if I want to understand the will of God I, I, and get a more complete picture of what he's doing right here, right now, I don't want just my word for it. I want yours. I want to share what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what God's doing in my life, and I want to share it with you so that you can share it with me and we can have a more holistic picture of what God is doing. The second thing, the kingdom of God is here. Remember, that was past tense. Jesus already did this. He already delivered us from the domain of darkness. He already transferred us, methystomy, into the kingdom of heaven. This has already happened. What we have to do now is live in it and bring it with us. And by that, I mean live in it. This is how it's played out in my life. I have the hope of the kingdom of heaven. I have the hope of the cross of what Jesus has done for us. I have this hope and I hang on to this hope and this is how it's worked. For me, I I struggle with insecurity and a lot of self-doubt. And it was real easy to go down those paths when I was going, especially into high school and college, it was really easy to have any trigger lead me down this path of I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm unloved. And every dark negative thought you could possibly have about yourself, I was thinking those things and it was really easy for me to keep going down that path. And so I kept doing it. And and that path would keep going and keep going and get worse and worse and worse. But at some point... I was also learning, at the same time I was learning to not like myself, I was also learning that Jesus loved me. And over and over again, I, I had those scriptures being taught to me. I had people showing me who Jesus, how Jesus loved me by loving me themselves. I had over and over again these, this reminder, and I was, as I was reading scripture, that Jesus, he created me. He has a plan for me, and he died for me. And so I'd get to those points where I'm walking down like this maze and, I'm, and I find these paths, all these paths that lead to this dark place of me not liking myself and not wanting to exist anymore. And I'd come in front of Jesus and Jesus would be like, you can't go any farther without denying me. Beyond this point, you have to say I'm wrong. You have to say I lied. That you, you are more right than I am. And I kept hitting that point. And I kept being like, oh, I'm unlovable. Nobody wants me. I am terrible. And Jesus being like, really? Because I remember dying for you. And I'd hit that point. I'd be like, oh, dang it. (laughs) And I'd turn around, you know, dang it. Somebody loves me. Ah, the God of the universe actually cares. And then I'd find a new path, a new day, a new problem. And I'd go down that path again. And Jesus would meet me there again and say, nope. 
You want to keep going, you have to understand that you have to say, no, I'm wrong. You have to say, all of that's wrong. And everybody else that you've, that have poured into your life, you have to say, they're all wrong too. I'm like, dang it. All right. Slowly but surely, Jesus wore me down to the point where I'm like, okay, well, maybe I do have a point. Maybe, maybe there is a purpose for my, my life. Maybe I am loved. I can't deny it anymore. I can't fight it anymore. Because every time I got to that point, Jesus would stop me and say, you going past this, you have to do it without me. And I never do it. And slowly but surely in my life, like Jesus meets me sooner and sooner in that path. To the point where most of the time, I don't even walk down them anymore. Because I know where it's going to go. I'm like, ah, this is a bad day. I'm terrible. Oh, never mind. I'm just, <laughs> I give up. You're right. I got it. <laughs> So I live in it. I live in it because I have hope in Jesus and he's told me that he loves me and that I have a purpose. And then I also bring it with me. Understand that Jesus established a, uh, he established a method and a model. He didn't say, go get a bunch of people to come to my kingdom. He said, I'm going to bring my kingdom with me to you and I want you to do the same for them. We bring the kingdom with us as we go, as we live our lives, the relationships that we have, we bring the kingdom of God with us to them. That is the purpose. Not to get everybody here, but to go there. That's what Jesus did for us, and that's what we're supposed to do for everybody else. And then recognize Jesus as king in your life. He's a pretty good king. He's pretty awesome, and living in his kingdom is awesome. And the more we get to do it, the more we recognize it, the more we give our, our authority over to, to him, the more we recognize that everything is about him and for him, including myself and my life, the the more we recognize him as king and the more we live within that zedekah, that righteousness, that right relationship, the way he intended us to live. So recognize Jesus as king in your life. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.